you know, since I've been the pastor here at St. Mark's, uh, I've heard quite regularly that St. Mark's is at its best when it has a vision or a goal in front of it. And so as we began to think about coming out of this pandemic and, and once again uh, looking forward as to what God might have the people of St. Mark's United Methodist Church be about and do in the future, we decided that uh, it might be good for us to wake to whatever that dream is and to seek to live into it as we seek to remain a faithful United Methodist presence in our community. And so as we began to think about how we might do that, we thought it might be helpful to just be reminded of how the discerning spirit of God is available to all of us. And we uh, decided on inviting the Reverend Dr. David Chotka to be our special guest. Uh, he came to our attention because he has worked extensively with uh, Reverend Danny Morris. Many of you know Danny as uh, a part of the Tennessee Conference of the United Methodist Church, uh, written books uh, and leading the way and talking about discernment. And uh, Danny is also the father, the the late father of um, Alan Morris, who's a member of our church. And it just so happens that David worked with Danny extensively, uh, talking about discernment, living into God's dream. Now, uh, we acknowledged as we gathered together this weekend that discernment is a loaded word in the United Methodist Church now. Many people, when they hear the word discernment, it's a code word for we're leaving the denomination. That's not what this is about. We want to continue to be a faithful Methodist presence in our community. And, and we want to approach discernment from a biblical standpoint of God, what would you have us as the people of St. Mark's to do and to be as we seek to wake up to and live into your dream? Uh, the Reverend Dr. Chotka has led us all weekend. It's been a great weekend for those of us who have been sitting at his feet, listening and learning from him and what God would say through him. And we're delighted to have him here this morning as our guest preacher. David, come and share God's word with us. Would you pray for me? Would you do that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Please do. Good morning, God. I give you thanks for the gift of David Chotka's life and ministry and for his willingness to come and be with us today. We pray, oh God, that uh, his leadership this weekend has helped us to begin to uh, establish a firm foundation on which we will seek to be a faithful United Methodist presence in our community and our world for years to come. We ask for a special anointing on David this morning as he comes to share your word for this people of God. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak in and through him now, and we pray this expectantly, and we pray this boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tommy. And praise God, I'm glad to be here. So where I come from, I always start my sermon by saying God is good, and then you respond. Do you do that here? Okay. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for the privilege of being in Tommy's pulpit, and thank you personally for giving me the opportunity to come and share. That's a big risk you took here. You put this in. <laughs> At any rate, I, I want to start off by saying that uh, I'm on a journey of learning, and so what you're going to hear as I'm presenting the, uh, the teaching from the scripture 
is part of my process of discovering how to pay attention to the leadings of the Lord's Spirit. I put most of them, most of the stuff that I've learned, and I'm still learning other things, into this book, which is here today. And at the end of our, our, our session, we're going to have a 15-minute uh, talk about the mechanics of doing that course. And if you want to understand how to do this, you can sign up for the course if you wish to do so. I know there's a, there's a crew of uh, about, what, 10 or 11 people who are going to do that for sure. Others can do that if you wish to join us. So having said that, I will tell you two stories that are found in that book. And I'm going to set it aside so I'm not distracted by it for the rest of the message. So let's get that first screen up, because uh, uh, we did hear this read. You'll notice that I have put numbers beside each of these uh, texts. What I'm doing in that is to highlight the different disciplines that are involved in paying heed to the voice of God's Holy Spirit. And uh, the first one is the word, the second one is the peace, the third one is unity in the body, the fourth one is psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and the fifth is the devotion of the believer as they do everything that God has for you. But why don't we say this together to get it inside our hearts, souls, and minds. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Thanks be to God for this reading from his holy word and to his name be praised and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And so this is the scripture where you find almost all of the teaching that I'm going to be giving you uh, around how to hear the voice of the Lord. Isn't it nice that God ordained that all of this should be in two verses or three verses? It's all here. It's an amazing kind of a thing. But I want to start off by saying nobody ever told me that it was actually possible to pay attention when God was trying to get mine. It's, I just didn't know that, you know, the God who oversees the thoughts and intentions of all the billions of people on the planet, who organizes, the, you know, the methane clouds on Neptune and takes care of the fish in the Marianas Trench, why would a God like that want to pay attention to the likes of you or me or anybody else? And I simply didn't know. No one taught me to listen to the voice of the Spirit or how that voice would speak. And it would have made life considerably better if I had learned this young. <laughs> As it, I, I don't know, has anybody here ever been dumb because they didn't pay attention? No one wants to put your hand up for that. And I commend you for not wanting to put your hand up. But <laughs> anyway, for this whole last weekend, we've been examining what the scripture has to say about how we hear God's voice. And it requires that we have a learning posture. A learning posture to obey the promptings of the Lord's Spirit. And to bring you on board, I'm going to tell you one of the stories. Uh, one of the first times I ever discovered that God actually wanted to communicate and guide me. I, I had no idea. This book, this story is actually in the book. It's one of the first ones there. But I want to just tell you about this discovery. And I'm telling you this story because it was the very first time that I'm aware of where God was trying to get my attention and I completely missed the boat. Absolutely, totally, completely missed the boat. And then I'm going to tell you a second story about a time two weeks later when I actually managed to hear. The year was 1979. Now, I grew up just north of Niagara Falls. I'm a Canadian. And uh, about 12 miles north of Niagara Falls is a city called St. Catharines. And that town was uh, a General Motors town. It was part of the American-Canadian Auto Pack. And all of the, uh, the employment in that town had to do with auto industry and gas and the production of parts and labor and that kind of thing. Very much a union town. It was 1979, and at that moment in, in history, the auto industry was in a terrible slump. 
I don't know if you remember the days when Japanese imports were replacing American and Canadian gas guzzler cars. And so 12 miles to the gallon wouldn't do anymore. They, they, they wanted 35 or 40 miles to the gallon. They were buying these Japanese Datsuns and that kind of thing, now called Nissan. At any rate, uh, in those days, the Niagara Peninsula, where I grew up, was in a terrible slump. And I don't know if you can imagine this, but the unemployment uh, rate at that moment in history, because of all of these factors, together with uh, the dollars coming off the gold standard and hyperinflation, it was 22.5% uh, in my hometown. That was a terrible time. It was just this awful thing. And my parents ran a restaurant, and attached to the restaurant there were five apartments. And this is how my parents made their living. They'd had other things. This, is, this was their, their clean living moment in life. Now, that restaurant was always immaculately clean. It was a diner. It was always filled with people who were laughing and te teasing each other. And the reason the restaurant succeeded was my mom was a crackerjack, first-class, old-fashioned cook, and my dad could make a room laugh by looking at people funny. It was this crazy kind of thing. People would drive across town to get there for a laugh and a meal. That's what they do. They were from all walks of life, the rich and the poor and the in-between, male, female, young, old. And I grew up working there, and that's where I learned to meet the public and to, to josh with people over the counter as I served them various kinds of foods. And if you ever take me to a restaurant, you will see me teasing the waitress because that's how I grew up. That's what I did. Anyway, my mom was this cook, my dad was a, was a jokester, and that's how the restaurant moved forward. Now, the slump came. Unemployment numbers grew. Factory workers got laid off, and extra cash vanished. Now, now when people aren't working, what's the first thing they cut out? You can tell me. Restaurants, coffee, tea, that kind of stuff, they cut it out. So here's the thing. The, the apartments were paying the bills, but we had no extra. And the restaurant was just barely eking it out, just getting ahead. And I was completing my Bachelor of Arts, trying to figure out life. Now, months before, I had landed a summer job. And in those days, if you wanted a summer job to start in May, you had to, you had to get that work done in December and January so that you would know that you'd be able to go to work for the summertime. And I was a student. And I got a job for a very large Canadian railway company, CN Rail. And they shipped uh, auto parts and cars from St. Catharines as well as other products across the nation. It was a perfect storm of a time, though, because those gas guzzler cars were being replaced by the imports. And here's what happened one week before my job was supposed to start. As it turned out, CN Rail was shipping all those auto parts. Of course, no auto parts were moving. CN Rail called me one week before I was supposed to start and said, we're sorry, Mr. Chotka, you don't have the job because our regular guys need the work that the summer students would get to keep them on board. We have to not hire any summer students. We're sorry. Well, they weren't the only ones that were sorry. <laughs> I didn't have any money. I had to go to school in the fall. I didn't know what I was going to do. Now, my family had enough to eat, and I'll just tell you this in a restaurant. You can always shave a little piece of beef off the roast when somebody doesn't come in to eat it. Lots to eat, no money at all. And so I got into a routine. My routine was, you know, help out in the restaurant for coffee time and breakfast time and lunch time, and then use the other times to try and find work. And in those days, you couldn't do it online. You had to shine your shoes. You had to look impressive. You had to have a resume that was typed out on a typewriter without mistakes. You couldn't just do backpack on your, on your computer. And anyway, I had this immaculate set of clothes to find work, and I would change from one to the other to get myself down, and you would hope to find work. Now, there was a regular customer who came into my parents' restaurant all the time. His name was Stan, and that guy had seen me from the time I was a wee little gaffer until I was a young adult. He came in every day at 9.45 for coffee, and he came in every day at 1.15 for my mother's homemade soup. Never, never failed to have that. He just liked it, and it was kind of like an extended family in this diner. Anyway, he got word from my dad that my job at the rail company had failed. 
And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, David, I, you got a good work ethic. I know you. I said, well, thank you, Stan. He said, well, I run a company and uh, I need a driver for my company. Would you, would you consider coming on board now? And he was blunt with me. He said, it's minimum wage. I can't pay you any extras. The best I can do is give you a minimum wage job driving this truck with product from store to store. In fact, it was delivering pantyhose and greeting cards. It was, I want you to know, it was store to store, not door to door. You want to understand that. Anyway, so <laughs> now pay was low, <laughs> but he was honest about it. And 22.5% unemployment, you're, beggars can't be choosers. I said, yes. And, and so here's what happened. He said, look. My office is, here's the address, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a red brick building with vines on it. You go to that address and, uh, and then I will tell the secretary that you have got the job. I don't need any kind of credentials. I've watched you work since you were a little kid. You can come, you have it. So show up and by the way, I have to sign you up for at least three months work because I'll have to train you and it's not worth my while unless you work for at least three months. I said, okay, that's fine with me. So I borrowed the car keys from my dad. You know, when I got in the car, I started to drive toward this place. And here's the thing that I wanted to tell you about. It was actually the moment where I began to understand that something was happening. As I was driving toward that building, uh, about, oh, about a mile and a half from where I lived, the strangest thing happened. I got into the car joyfully content. I was filled with the ordinary kind of pieces attached to being a believer in the Lord. And as I was driving toward that building, the peace began to diminish and the closer I got to that building, the worse it got. Now, here's what I did. I ascribed that to nerves because it was a new kind of job and I hadn't done anything like this before. And I needed the work. But, you know, I got to this old brick warehouse. It was covered with vines on all sides. It had a large factory sliding loading dock with a loading dock on it. it. Had an inset door inside the slider door. And there was no other door in the building. So I got in the loading dock and I bang on the, the inset door. I, I, I yell and I shout and I go around the building and... And I just don't feel good about this. I, I don't know. You, you ever had one of those gut-level hunches like something was terribly wrong when there was absolutely no evidence that it was? Has that ever happened to you? I, that's, that's how it felt. Now, you got to know, I don't think there's anything sinful about pantyhose and greeting cards. Is there? <laughs> anyway, so I couldn't find the door. It was the craziest thing. I couldn't find the door. So I thought to myself, my dad's going to think I'm an idiot. I can't find the door. Have I got the wrong address? So I get back in the car, and as I'm driving away from the building, the peace returns. It was the most crazy kind of thing. And I, I just noticed that I had this joyful sense of love overflowing inside my heart and peace and contentment. And I got back to the restaurant, and my dad said, when do you start? I said, Dad, it's the craziest thing. I couldn't find the door. My father was not at all happy about the intelligence level of his son. Anyway, Stan comes in for his 115 bowl of soup. And he said, you didn't come up to, to the office to take the job. I said, Stan, it's the craziest thing. Did I have the wrong address? And I said, I, it was a red brick building with vines all over it and a loading dock and a slider door. And I said, that's the place. But you, 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 you didn't go around the back where there's a trellis that's overgrown with vines and you have to go around that. I said, you mean I have to go around the back, around a trellis that's covered in vines so I can find the front door? He said, yes. <laughs> so he said, well, look, this, this business of mine works by telephone and by orders. Nobody comes to that building, and he starts laughing, and my dad starts laughing, and my dad lends me the keys again. So I get in the car, and I start driving toward this building once again, and the exact same thing happened. My, my heart turned to lead. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
the closer I got to that building, the worse I felt. I was uneasy. I was unsettled. I, my, the peace vanished. I started to feel like it was led inside. I got around that trellis. I walked in. I said hello to the secretary. The lady said, Mr. Chotkin, Mr. Shepherd said you have the job. All you have to do is sign up for 90 days, and it's yours. And she passed me the pen. She passed me the contract. I gazed at the thing, and I felt physically ill. But I, need, I needed the work. 22.5% unemployment. So I signed the form, and I said, okay, I'm going to start. And then she said to me, tomorrow morning when Mr. Shepherd goes to your parents' restaurant for coffee, he'll bring the van over. You'll start your training then. I said, very good. Thank you very much. And I went home, and I felt like I was going to just cry the night away. So the next morning, I got myself up, and I was getting myself ready to be prepared for this new job, and I was getting some work clothes on. And at 8.30 in the morning, the telephone rang. It was the Department of Highways for the Niagara Parks Commission offering me a job for twice the amount of money with a return policy for students and medical and dental built in. Next day, I had said yes to a family friend. I had given my signature, and I felt that I needed to uphold my word, and so I took the job with the other man, even though I had this other opportunity, and I had signed on for 90 days with an option of a year because he wanted that, and so I felt that I needed to do this. Now, I, here's what I want to say to you. I had not a sweet clue that that might actually be God giving me some sort of direction here. I just didn't know. But we heard the scripture text today from Colossians. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you're called into one body. The peace is supposed to be the ruler. You're supposed to pay attention to the increase and the withdrawing of his presence. And that's what I spent the weekend talking about in the seminar. But I had not an idea that that might actually be God because I've had moments of peace before. I've had moments of despair before. And I didn't know that the Lord could actually use my conscious estate and my ability to reason and think and the awareness of his presence inside my heart to be an indicator that he might want to guide me. So here's the principle. And you all know this. And you all go through all the different seasons of the church here. In scripture, God speaks. And we know he did so through things like the spectacular. So you know this. You know, the angel appears to so-and-so. And, -so, and uh, oh, by the way, uh, the Lord appears to Saul of Tarsus and he falls down, he's struck blind, that kind of thing. We hear all those stories where the, the angel appears to the Virgin Mary and speaks to the Virgin and speaks to Joseph. And they're going to have the child. And we think of those events, these big events that we find in the Bible, and not recognize that there's another aspect to hearing the voice. The spectacular is occasional, not ordinary. It's occasional. And the ordinary means of discerning the voice or listening to the voice of the Spirit is to pay attention to something quite remarkably ordinary. It's the peace of God. Now, that's a very simple lesson just communicated. That, that, that simple lesson is communicated to the ordinary believer. That no, the trouble was nobody taught me. So let's get the next screen up and I'll just give you these principles. So the experience of increasing peace, pointing us to the Scripture and to the presence of Jesus, or... The experience of decreasing peace or the loss of peace distracting us from the word and the presence of Jesus is God's ordinary method of discerning the voice. It's ordinary. Now, let me, I'll just do a little experiment here. Um, anybody here walked into a room and knew you were in the wrong place? Hands up. Okay. You heard the voice. Now, let me put the other... I'll, I'll go positive on this one. How many here have walked into a room... And suddenly you just knew it was very, very right. Put your hand up. That's the voice. God talks that way. Now, I'll, I'll prove to you that you all heard the voice. Has anybody here ever sinned? The choir needs to raise his hand. 
Nobody in the choir raised their hand. There, there's no sinners in the choir. Okay, so. Has anybody here ever sinned? <laughs> okay. How many here, after you sin, got a conviction in your heart you needed to repent, change your ways? You've heard the voice. You've heard the voice. It, it, it doesn't have to be an angelic visitation for you to recognize that the Lord himself is speaking. But how do you do this in ordinary life? So I, I, I wanted to zero in on this passage in Colossians. So let's get up screen number five here. So the passage in Colossians makes clear there's a center to everything that we think, say, and do. And that center is the scripture, the word, the message, the covenant of Jesus. And let's review that by way of 316 about this principle. So what does it say? The, the blue text is kind of hard to read, but let's try if we can do it. Say it with me. That the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, it doesn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in you from time to time. It doesn't say, come to church, listen to the scripture once a week. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. richly. That means if I scratch you, you bleed Leviticus chapter 11 and don't eat rock badger. You're going to do that. <laughs> anyway, it means that the, the center of your life is focused in on how we pay heed to the, to the scripture. Go to any kind of Christian church. I don't care what kind it is. You could be sacramental, evangelical, charismatic, or anything, any hybrid of all of those three streams. Go into any kind of Christian church, and they will teach you that the Bible is the hub around which our lives as believers revolves. You're in a custom in this church of using the lectionary. We'll leave that aside for my message today. But ordinarily, when you come here, you hear four readings from the Scripture. Isn't that true? And you listen to the Old Testament, you listen to the New, the Epistle, you listen to the Gospel, you reflect on a psalm, you do a responsive reading, you recite the Creed, you put yourself inside the classic stream of Christian tradition, and you listen to Scripture, and that's how it works. And here's the principle, the Word is eternal, the Word is everlasting, the Word is forever binding and releasing an effect upon us, it contains magnificent promises, and it's expressed means of God communicating to us. What he is, what the human condition is, how we must live, what we must do. It's the way to God. It shows us in grand fashion the all-encompassing plan of God. I want to just make something really clear. There's a whole stream of thinking that says that it's irrelevant. I let it never be said that the Bible is merely a culturally conditioned document from an historically conditioned message to an ancient culture. The word, while it's birthed in the culture, is a transcultural document. It has principles and precepts that cut across and transform every race and nation. Now, I have spoken in 17 nations. I have spoken to tribals in the middle of Africa. I've spoken to Latin Americans. I've spoken to, to individualistic Germans in Germany. I've spoken to Norwegians and, and Brits in England. I've traveled to Asia, and I've spoken to tribals inside the island of, uh, of Timor, and I've been to, to world-class events in Australia, New Zealand, and so on. I'll just say this to you. Every one of those cultures reads the Bible. <laughs> Every one of those cultures actually takes principles from Scripture and applies them transculturally. It speaks to English lords and ladies and to hillbillies from the Ozarks. It speaks to South Asian textile workers and Russian mafiosos. It speaks to skilled computer technicians from the Philippines and common laborers in Tibet. It speaks to Africans and Latin Americans, young and old. It does so by gripping the hearts and minds of any who would hear the message, and it changes them from the inside out. There is no other book that has that kind of power. It's amazing. I wound up talking to Ukrainian mafiosos after those Ukrainians repented because they read the Bible. And when they smiled, they had gold teeth. And they had these, you know, they looked, they looked like that guy from James Bond with the teeth who'd bite you. Anyway, they, and they believed in Jesus it was because they read the scripture. Now, whatever you do with all the questions that are attached to how you interpret the thing, the bottom line is Jesus said this text. Heaven and earth, say it with me, 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means pass away. And so the principle is, let the word of Christ dwell in you how? Richly. So Wesley said this. This is, this is Methodist tradition. This is what John Wesley said in the heart of the Methodist revival. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this, for this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. That's the words of John Wesley. Beyond this, the words is the means by which we discern the witness of the Spirit because the word is not just dead letters sitting on some page. The word is alive. Now, we need some background to understand this principle. Virtually any comment on the nature of Scripture quotes this passage from the book of Hebrews. So let's take a look at it here. I think we should say this together. Say it with me. For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. That's the principle behind this discernment principle that we're teaching. The word is alive. Now, I, I, let me just ask you this question. Anybody here read the Bible? Hands up. Okay. When you read it, have you had one of those moments where the scripture grips your heart and suddenly you've got to pay attention? Has that ever happened to you? That's how the word is alive. It just speaks to something deep inside the heart of the believer. And even if you're coming from a context that's different from anybody else's and you read it, it just grips you. It takes hold of you. And, we're to, and, and here's what it does. The word grabs us. The presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us illuminates it. And suddenly you've discovered that you have heard not only a word from an ancient culture, but the voice of Jesus is mediated as the spirit moves upon the word inside your deepest heart and conviction. We're t it produces peace. And we're supposed to live in the peace of Christ. The word of God is given to cut away anything that prevents us from being in that place of rest. The word then is directly connected to our experience of the spirit. And the two are forever intertwined. We're supposed to let the peace of Christ do what? You have it on the screen? Let the peace of Christ do what? Rule. Now, I did talk about this yesterday, but some of you weren't there. And so I'm going to repeat this. And if you were there, please bear with me. <laughs> that word rule is the key. It's the key to understanding how the peace works. It has a thousand years history being used in a similar way. Every single time that word is used, it refers to an umpire, a referee, or a judge of some kind, usually in some sort of a sporting match. And I remember one time I was watching the Toronto Blue Jays play a Cleveland team. And I must tell you that when that ball was hit, it looked like it was going to be knocked out of the park. Now, I'm a Toronto fan. I hope that doesn't disturb you or cause you not to want to listen to the rest of this message. At any rate, I watched, I watched the Cleveland player rise in the air as he reached the thing, and he turned around midair and took the ball and threw it. And as he spun in the air and turned that ball around, and he threw that ball, it was just as the Toronto player was going to touch the, uh, the first base uh, bag, and it was a judgment call about whether or not the guy on first base were saved or out. And to my great dismay and consternation, the, the umpire said the boy was out, which was most disturbing to me. Now, the trouble was, 
I had no choice except to respect the skill of that Cleveland player. Anyway, do you, any Cleveland fans here? None. I'm on safe ground. Anyway, <laughs> anyway the point is, the ref made the decision, I mean, the, the, the umpire made the decision, and it was really close. I didn't know if he was going to be safer out because his foot hit the bag as the ball hit the glove, and I wasn't sure if there was a quarter of an inch between the, the foot of the player. But you got to know, I admired the way that Cleveland player threw that ball. It was incredible. And when it was done, I had to admit with grudging reluctance that the Cleveland player was superior to my Toronto player, which was most disturbing to me. Anyway, moving on here. The peace rules. It's the ordinary means by which we understand. And once, it, once it's used to refer to an arbiter, one who sits between two sides, each makes their case, the arbiter makes the final decision. So referees tell you, umpires tell you, whether what you've done is fair or foul. That's how it works. So here's the principle. Our Lord is to rule us, to oversee us, because it's the peace of Christ. So it's Christ who's giving you the peace by the increase of the withdrawing of his presence. This, by the way, is the heritage of every believer through all time, because God is always speaking. And sometimes he speaks Canadian English, eh? Sometimes he speaks Southern, huh? Okay, now, paraphrase, Colossians 3.15. This is my paraphrase. This is... Uh, this is what I'm trying to do to put my finger on what that peace is like. Now, I did say this yesterday, but I want the whole congregation to hear this. Say it with me. Let the peace of the Christ who lives within by his tangible presence direct your steps, refereeing each decision you take. Let his peace serve as the umpire, judging, weighing each step you take, each option before you. That's the nugget that I think gives you a quick discernment guide, a quick ability to be able to know whether or not you're walking in what God wants or if you're being distracted from his presence. If your peace vanishes, pay attention. That might be God's warning signal. If the peace increases, pay attention. That might be God's direction. So I want to end up by a time when I heard this happen to me. It was two weeks after that defining moment with the job. I uh, graduated from Brock University in St. Catharines, the Niagara region. It was, a, it was a school in those days of about 3,000. Now it's about 20,000. The school had just been founded. It was about two or three weeks after the incident that I just described to you with the job. And so I'm starting this minimum wage job. And I used to belong to a prayer circle there. And uh, in that prayer circle was a couple named Derek and Deb. Uh, actually, they were, they were Methodists. They were United Methodists. Yeah, they were. Anyway, they, we had prayed many a time together about their desire to go overseas to work and do missions work. And uh, it involved these. So I was always praying with them about this. And I had been attending a number of different groups for my learning. I went to, an, I went to a church Bible study where people were talking about uh, what, uh, the principles of the scripture. I belonged to the university where that prayer meeting was. And I went to a Friday evening prayer and praise at a United Church. So I had these three different streams of teaching going on in my life when I first became a believer. As it turned out, in the same week, the same topic showed up in all three of those studies, and it was something I didn't want to do. So I grew up a cheapskate, and they were talking about tithing, you know, giving the first 10% of your income to the Lord to serve them. You know, and and I, I, I'm a new Christian. I thought, well, God doesn't need my money. I have to eat. God doesn't have to eat. Why does he need my money? That kind of thing was in my head, you know. Anyway, I remember the moment I had said that to the Lord. I need to eat. God doesn't need to eat. 
what, why, why should I give my money to the Lord? And I went to the Bible study, and, we were, and the guy opens this thing up, and he says, you know, we're tempted to try and spend God's money on food and eating. What do you do? Eat God's money? And suddenly he had my attention. So, so we started to learn this. And then I went to, the, I went to the, 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 uh, the, Bible, the prayer meeting, and they were talking about that too. And then I went to the prayer and praise, and three people got up and testified about the tithe and how they did this. And it was like, you know, the, the bang on the side of the head. That's one of the ways God guides too. Anyway, finally, in the course of time, I decided that what I needed to do was set aside the first 10% of what I was making. And it was a minimum wage job. I did teach music lessons on the weekend. And so I made a little bit of money with part-time music teaching, and my full-time job was a minimum wage job, but I had an envelope, and I put the money in the envelope. I didn't know where I was supposed to give that money. Nobody taught me about that yet. I was a new Christian. So uh, one day, I was, I was having a prayer time, and about 120 bucks was sitting in that envelope. And I said to the Lord, you know, I think I better give this away before I try and spend it on myself. I think I better just do that. And so I knelt down beside my bed, and it was the craziest thing. I said, Lord, where do I, where do I give this money? And as my knees touched the floor on the rug next to my bed, suddenly I thought of my two friends, Derek and Deb, the Methodist couple, who were thinking about going overseas. And I didn't want to give all of the money away, but I wanted to give most of it. And so I started talking to God. It was 4 o'clock on a Friday. Remember that detail? Say it out loud. 4 o'clock on a Friday. That's important. Say it again. Four o'clock on a Friday. I knelt down. Oh, the voice spoke. Okay. I knelt down beside my bed at four o'clock on a Friday, and I immediately thought of this couple. So I said to the Lord, well, how much should I give them? And I thought, I'll give them most of it. How about 110 bucks? And the only way I can describe what happened next, my heart got joyful at giving, which was really quite a miraculous thing because I was a cheapskate. Joyful at giving. And then not peaceful about the money. It was, it was like this sense of something's wrong. And so I had this feeling in my soul like I needed to try again. So I thought, okay. And I didn't increase the number. I decreased it because I was a cheapskate. Okay, so there you go. So I went 109. And the joy was there. And the presence got richer. But it still was kind of clouded. That's the only way I can describe it. And then I said, how about 108 bucks? And suddenly my heart became joyful and I went from kneeling on the ground to standing in the room and I was celebrating the fact that I was going to give away $108 in cash, which is really quite remarkable. Anyway, I got a, a three-by-five card. I wrote down the only scripture I knew about giving from Philippians. You know, it's, it's the thing about uh, our God is supplying all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, this thing about uh, reciprocal giving and blessing and so on. I put that text down and I put their names on the front cover. I got the guy's name right. I misspelled his wife's name. So I got, I got the name misspelled. And I, here's what I did. It was, it was Friday. And I had to work a shift in my parents' restaurant. So I got the floors cleaned. I got the grills cleaned. And then I decided that I would drive over to where their home was. I'd been there once before. I drove over to their home, and I waited till it was dusky so they couldn't see me, see. And I snuck up to the mailbox. It's like, you, you guys don't call it Nicky Nicky Nine Doors. What do you call it when you show and then you run away? What do you call that? Ding dong ditch. That's it. Ding dong ditch. That's much better than Nicky Nicky Nine Doors. <laughs> say, say it with me. Ding dong ditch. That's it. So I snuck up pretending I was doing... You're supposed to say it. <laughs> and, and the light bulb was burned out. It was dark. I lifted the mailbox cover, and I put the money with the, with the card and the misspelled name in it, and I ran away and got in the car and drove away. And I felt curious, you know. 
I'm just curious. So, so I, just, I have a little dog, you know, and that was about three blocks from my house. And I decided one day that I would just walk up and down the street with my dog until either Derek or Deb invited me in. So I did that because I really wanted to know what happened. And Der as it turned out, Derek stuck his head out the door. And he said, Dave, what are you doing? I said, I'm walking the dog. He said, come on in. And he said, I, gotta, I just got to tell you something. Our God is supplying all our needs according to his riches and glory. And I felt so smug. I was ready to, 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 to say something, but I, did, I felt I shouldn't. And so... So he said, I said, well, what do you mean? I said, <laughs> and at that moment he said, well, it's the craziest thing. It was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Friday at four o'clock in the afternoon. Say that again, Friday at four o'clock in the afternoon. And my wife and I realized that we could not become international workers to Southeast Asia when I hadn't finished my degree. And so we needed to take a course that was only offered uh, once every two years. And I had to get that course. It was offered on Monday night. It was Friday. Both of our parents were away. We had no means. We both had jobs. We were going to get paid on Wednesday. We both work at the Howard Johnson's in the restaurant and uh, student labor stuff. Anyway, he said, you know, we had food. We had, we, we had gas in the car. But we needed to pay for that course on Monday. And the course was $158. And all that we had was 50 bucks. I said, What? He said, yeah. So, uh, so we, I, on the Friday at four in the afternoon, Deb and I agreed in prayer that God would send $108 to us so that I would be able to pay for the course on Monday. And we spent the whole... Now, of course, I dropped it in the mailbox on Friday, right? And <laughs> he didn't check the mailbox till Monday morning because the mail stops on Friday. And, uh, and so he prays all weekend. Actually, they fast on the Saturday because they want to see whether or not God's going to supply... And on Sunday evening, he got a gift of faith to believe that God was going to give him 108 bucks in cash. And so he made the decision that he would just proceed. And he stepped outside on Monday morning, opened the mailbox, and there was the exact dollar figure right to the penny. Now, I didn't tell him. I did three years later because he was going through a terrible crisis and he needed to know that God could speak to him. But I'll tell you what I learned. This is what I learned. I learned that I could actually get it right. I could actually get it right. Now, I've heard all kinds of amazing faith stories from all kinds of different people. I had never been in a place where I actually managed to get it exactly right when I needed to get it right. And so can you. So can anybody. The whole principle behind this is the peace of Jesus inside of you increases when you're pleasing him. And the peace of Jesus remains constant when your walk is steady. The peace of Jesus inside of you diminishes when you wind up in trouble. And the peace of Jesus can just vanish when you're about to be foolish and do something you shouldn't do. But the most amazing thing for me is that the peace of Jesus can be the means by which you are given exact and clear guidance to do the things that bring pleasure to him. And so we're going to be discovering how that works over the next six weeks or so. We're going to be doing that in the course on Monday nights at 7 o'clock. So I, I'm not sure how they sign up for that if they want to. Is there a, sign up at the office? Is that what they do? Call up? Okay, call up the office and you can make that happen. But I just want to say this to you. I do believe in a God who speaks. Now, what I, my mistake before was to assume that God only spoke through the spectacular. What I now know and I lived by this day by day. And from, that, from those two experiences on, ever since I failed to hear the voice the first time and got it right the second, 
What I have learned is that I'm supposed to pay particular attention to that and nurture the presence of the Spirit inside my heart, soul, and mind through regular attendance at worship, through participation in scripture study, through prayerful reflection, through prayer and fasting. This season of Lent is a marvelous time to do that very kind of thing. But what I've learned is that when I practice the disciplines, I actually can get it right, which is really quite remarkable. I, I you know, because, you know, I don't know if you've had your foot in your mouth or done the wrong thing more than a time or two, but I've certainly done that. And what the most important thing I've learned is God is not done even when you've been foolish or an idiot. The Lord wants to redirect us into his purposes. And here's what Danny Morris taught me. It's not just for an individual. It can be for whole communities of faith. Small group purposes can be discerned. Whole congregations can hear the voice of Jesus. And the reason why we're doing this is so that the whole church can understand what it is that God is saying by the increase of the withdrawing of his presence. Let me pray with you. Father, I want to thank you and bless you for the ministry of St. Mark's Church. I want to thank you for what I saw outside with disaster relief and care for people. It's an amazing place where people show up when everybody's in trouble. This is a place where people come to worship the Lord. This is a place where children sing. And this is a place where people laugh together and experience the goodness of God together. Let this be a place where the voice of the Spirit is recognized by the increase of the presence. Let that be so, in Jesus' name. Amen.